Hello everyone, and welcome back to the NTG Novels Project 0.4. We will continue our reading of The Color of Magic, edited by Jess LeBeau. However, I wanted to give a quick shout out to Coach at the Carbsard YouTube for the idea and inspiration. Check the comments for links to his audiobooks for the first three novels. Full disclosure, I had a speech impediment earlier in life, which I've tried my best to overcome. I also apologize if you find my voice nasally or otherwise dislike it. I'm trying my best to provide you with the best content I'm able to provide. However, this being said, I'd love to hear constructive feedback which corrects pronunciation issues or provides other realistic feedback that can improve the project. Legal note. This is an unofficial audiobook with original content belonging to Wizards of the Coast. This content is covered under the 2017 Wizards of the Coast fan content policy. Listener discretion is advised. Blue, sometimes called the color of distinction, is characterized by calm hands and a reflective mind. A natural sedative, blue is the color of deliberation and introspection, conservatism and acceptance. Blue has almost universal appeal and is considered to be the most aesthetically appealing color. Blue is the color of respect and wisdom but those who lean towards blue sometimes use reason for selfish and self-justified purposes. It is the color of control and passive aggression, as well as the color of the sea and the sky. Blue is for those who contemplate people, who exercise caution in words and actions, and those who, who always weigh the options. Our story today is Expeditions to the End of the World. By J. Robert King. Red-faced and burly, Captain Crucius mingled among his noble passengers. Though he wore his best jacket, a black waistcoat with gold buttons, and red Jamirian appointments, he felt clumsy and common among these folks. They sat like porcelain dolls all around him, poised on the iron settees he had bolted to the ship's deck. Most were enduring the week-long journey with Argivian aplomb, which means complaints about the cabin size, food quality, shanty lyrics, salt spray, fish smells, strong winds, daytime glare, nighttime murk, and full-time nausea. On this particular voyage, the high priestess of dissatisfaction was Madame Geary, more implacable and discontent than the sea itself. She took up a whole settee around her arrayed the accoutrements of her discomfort. Book, bumbershoot, shawl, crackers, and tepid tea, her white shirt, camise, and grey cashmere gown were complemented by a pudgy face in light green. Crucius approached. Are you feeling better today, my dear? Much to, must the ship bounce and sway so much, she asked testily, her eyes like twin red daggers in the morning sun. Crucius gave an apologetic smile and gesture expansively to the bright open ocean all around. The sea have waves, Madame Geary. I'm not talking about the sea, she gasped, clutching an ill-used handkerchief to her lips before the drawing of the strength. I'm talking about the ship. Can't you control your old ship? You have all these ropes and sails and anchors and things. Surely you could use them to smooth the ride. We'll be meeting Argoth this afternoon, madame. Then we'll anchor for the show 
and your stomach will have a chance to satter. Crucia said soothingly. My niece, Algia, is so ill. She couldn't get out from her bunk this morning. She's hoping to meet a husband on this, this displeasurable excursion, she snapped. But no, young men. Seven days of monotony. Seven days of seasickness. I tell you, they'd be better some, be some express, impressive explosions and definite signs of death and mayhem on the island. Or I'll make my own cataclysm battle right here. Crucius managed a rueful smile. I sure, madame. When Mishra and Urza battle, there's plenty of death and mayhem for all. He took the better power of valor and moved on. Yes, they'd wreath Argos soon and would anchor opposite the plains where the two brothers fought, where the whole world fought. There Crucius and his roster of rich, arrogant nobles would drink wine, eat steaks, and watch young men and women die. Expeditions to the end of the world, he had dubbed them. It was Crucius's fourth such journey, and he hated them. War profiteering at its worst. He made a living, exploding human bloodlust and misery. Blast, Crucius muttered beneath his breath as he dutifully polished a dull patch of brass railing. Privateering was better, he lamented. Of all the abuse of this beautiful ship, for twelve restless months on, after his daughter's death, Crucius had designated the Corsair. He had sketched her out all day long in his sleep. For the next ten years, he and his crew had built her by hand. It was a kind of practical mourning, an apology in wood, and a pitch for the life he had been unable to give his daughter. He personally had carved the figurehead into her likeness, had even granted the ship her name, Nanive, and had sailed her into the unimagined shores. Nanive was a dream made real, and designed to discover new lands for Krug. And then Krug ceased to exist. Mishra's army swallowed it like a hunk of hardtack. No longer were there government commissions. No longer were there joint stock companies. The winds of finance and politics died. Dead calm. Captain Crucius and his newly built Nynaeve were adrift. He evidently took on Argivian cargoes. But Nynaeve's hold was not designed to hold vast stores. She had been built for speed. The cargo reached their ports but Crucius lost coin with every crate unloaded. A monetary shipwreck. Desperate, he had hired a crew of harpooners and laid in a store of hooks, lines, nets, and carving tools, hoping to pay for it all with spermaceti. They tracked and slain one whale, but the mess of dead meat hanging to port, the constant cloud of seagulls and sharks, and the horrid, inert bulk of something that had once moved with terrific and majestic grace through the water. Crucis would have sooner harpooned himself than another whale. <laughs> but Argivian nobles, indolent, wealthy, bloodthirsty nobles, he had no qualms about harpooning them. As a repellent as they were, they paid well, and they stood in long lines for a chance to see the world in a con conflict of Argoth. Another trip, and Crucis's debts would be paid off. Two or three more, and he and Nynaeve would sail away to distant shores, never again to, to see Teresiar. Until then, he only hoped the war lasted. Let's play there's enough mayhem and death for everyone. 
on the night he'd first seen Nynaeve, there'd be mayhem plenty, Drunk with blood on his knuckles and in his teeth, Captain Crooks had staggered back through the cobbled streets of S Samifa. He had made his way down dark canyon shops and houses, their shutters bleeding golden illumination into the night. The light painted him tiger-like. He liked the connotation. Gold and blood. A man eating cats. It summed up his life. He wanted things to be different. Had hoped to distinguish himself aboard a Yotian war galley. But a liaison with an admiral's daughter in this very city had ended any hopes of that. He still saw the girl every year or so. But for five years, he hadn't seen the inside of any ship but a rover or a brigantine. In that time, he had risen to his own captaincy as a privateer. Knuckles and teeth had won him his ship, backstab, and persistent work with the cutlass had won him a small fortune in gold. Tonight's fight had been another battle in the defense of that fortune. A thief who thought he ha who ought to have some accrucious gold now lay bloodied and bruised in a tavern alley. Mayhab had not been the life he'd planned, but it was one given to him, and it suited him well enough. At the very least, he would not get bored. He'd be fighting and drinking and winching until the day one of his vices killed him. The life of a privateer was blessedly short. Captain Crusus near backstab, dark in his mooring. His head reeled from drink and fisticuffs. And from, what is that hellish noise? It was a high keen like the wail of a cat being crushed in a vice. Crucius shook his head, wondering what poor sob was getting it from some other port sod. He plotted up the black stab's gangplank and the sound only grew louder. Blast! Crucius stepped onto the deck, gritty and in need of a holy stoning. Several figures slouched into rope coils or unfolded sails along the dark rail, Muslims drunk and sleeping. One was awake. Oi, Biggs, what is that ruckus? Crucius growled. The man shrugged. Woman came by. Said she had something to give you. I left her in her cabin. She left. Half an hour later. There's this bellowing. Crucius reflectively raised his hand to shield his ears. How long has this been going on? Hour, maybe? Hard to say. No moon tonight. Worthless, Crucius hissed at Biggs. Clenching his bloody fist, Crucius stomped unsteadily to his cabin. He flung back the door. The wheels paused for only a moment, then continued with renewed vigor. He had known it would be a baby, known even who the mother would have been. But to enter his inner sanctum and find it violated by an intruder, the child screamed right across his drink-jaddled nerves. Blast it, child, hush! Grabbing a jackstraw, Crucius lit a hand lantern and stalked into the room. He cringed under the auditory assault and crouched, at, crouched as he walked, as though expecting attack. This was supposed to be his private cabin. Heavy furnishings, padlocked trunks, blunderbusses, cutlass, rum casks, cigars. A man's place. But all of its grim grounder was despoiled by that delicately woven bathtub and its pink bundle of blankets. And the tiny house waving like tender anemones in the air. Blast. Crucius stalked to the basket, lifted the glittering lantern, and stared down at that shrieking face. He had expected to despise the child, a thing wet at both ends and smelling of milk, and to be sure, she is not a beauty in her screaming fury. But there was such loneliness and fear in her cry, 
alone in this strange place, her screams unheeded for hours, her mother gone and only growling, glaring seamen all about. Crucis saw something in himself in her, not just in the form of the eyes and lips that were undoubtedly his, but in the desperate anger of a creature forsaken. The child's spastic kicking dislodged a slip of paper folded beside her swaddled leg. Crucius gently lifted a note and unfolded it. The handwriting was that of the Admiral's daughter, who had cost him a secret. He read, She is yours. I cannot raise her. Crucius bowed forward. And I can? An outlaw? A privateer? He scratched his head. I'll have to start all over. I'll have to settle down. I'll have to stop fighting for nothing and start fighting for everything. The baby let out a wail so full born that Crucius instinctively sat the lantern and note and gently raised her in her, his arms. His hands left trails of blood across the plink blankets. She clutched at his cloak, wet with sweat and spilled ale, and quieted. There, there, darling. There, there. The baby tugged on his buttons, struggling to claw closer. Blast! Half the crew abandoned him that very hour, though sober enough to hear the yammering, a quarter more deserted in the deep of morning. A female on the ship was bad luck. A female baby on the ship was preposterous. Crucius agreed. It seemed reasonable enough that first moment, as the poor lost creature quieted to his touch. It seemed like less reasonable when she awakened, hungry and implacable, an hour later. He couldn't make headway or crackers or jerk beef. And ale was out of the question. She needed milk. She needed a mother. So still bloodied and half drunk, Crucius Mac backed up the streets he had descended in search for the animal's daughter. A bloody pirateer looking a shrieking infant down the streets at three in the morning was a sore spectacle Samifa allowed. Crucius was jumped by a patrol of armed men. Half dozen fists ended his objections. He and the baby were hauled to the constabulary. The soldiers charged him with kidnapping and threw him in a cage with a couple of drunks. One of them turned out to be the man Crucius had bleeding bloody earlier that night. There's no repeat to the fight, though. The fellow saw him and pretended to be more drunk and beat up than he was. Crucius was glad. The armsmen had not been none too gentle bringing him in. They treated the child a little better, letting her kick and scream in the basket in the corner while they went about to their business. He shouted her to fight her some milk to see if she had dirtied herself, to fetch the creature's mother, to do something to stop that blasted howling. Eventually, the constables did fetch the animal's daughter. She entered, still lug and defiant in her blue Jamarian dress gown, a cloak over her shoulders and an outraged father over her the coat. The night Crucius had first met this woman, her skin was white as ivory. Tonight it seems a shade of ice. She took Lord Lusat, Crucius, and spat on the floor and said, The girl's not mine. She is not anyone's. I doubt this man is a kidnapper. I doubt he is anything at all. Crucius flung his hands out of the bars, implying, How can you say that? Can't you hear her crying? White mustache and red face, the animal pulled his daughter back. My daughter would not talk with cutthroats. She talked with me three times that night, Crucius interrupted, and I resent the implication that dragged us from our beds. Come now, Admiral, you must have known of the pregnancy. How do you care so much for your daughter and so little for your daughter's daughter? Forgive us, one of the Arthmen said, was saying as he ushered the two away from Crucius, and you, shut up. See if you can get this brat to shut up too. Crucius had never broken out of jail before. He'd been in a dozen of them, and had never reason to escape from any, but tonight the child left him no choice. He bear, couldn't bear her cries any moment longer. When the guardsmen returned to unbraid him, Crucius wrapped the man in a stranglehold, stole his keys, 
tried each lock until it locked open and departed. He'd never broken out of jail before. Even if he had, he'd never have snatched a screaming baby en route. But once again, the child left him no choice. She was alone as he. She was as desperate and terrified as he. They were more father and daughter. They were soul twins. Impossibly stupid, Crucius fled with her in the basket. He fled, arms and hot in his tail, through the streets of Samifa. At the wharf, he lost his pursuers long enough to wrangle one cow out of a herd on an adjacent ship. With curses on lasting figures, he joys the noisome beasts off the glam plank of backstab. It was tough sailing the brigantine out of the dot. His crew was reduced to only five seamen, five drunken and utterly reluctant sailors. After all, Backstab now hosted two females, a baby and a bovine. Blast, Crucis noted to himself as he bucked the one to feed the other. This baby was going to change everything. If she was going to survive, if he was going to survive, she would change everything. Soon he found himself at sea with her. With her, a cow, and no crew. In cowardice collusion, the fight had taken one of Backstab's low boats and rolled back to Samifa. It is impossible for a single man to sail Bergantine. It is impossible for Crucius to man sails and routers and pumps all at once. It is even more impossible that he should do it while caring for a child and caring for the cow that fed her. They were all doomed to drift and die, he was sure. And yet somehow, looking at the beautiful, sad, abandoned face, he knew he would do it. He knew he would do the possible. He would stop fighting for nothing and start fighting for everything. It was quite a scene. The battlefield stretched out in the near distance and a group of sapphire-skinned merfolk had gathered for the afternoon's entertainment in a cluster off the port side. The nobles on the boat had gotten up from their settees to stand along the rail and watch in awe. The island of Argoth was wide and grey in the afternoon light, reaching arms out to encompass the eastern horizon and threaten Nuneve. She lay in deep waters beyond the harbour where Misha's warcraft crowded. Against the shoreline, their masts and spars formed a forbidding thicket. If man or machine had remained aboard any of those ships, Captain Crucius would have done well to prepare for a quick departure. But every ounce of muscle and mechanism were currently engaged inland. In front of Crucius's pestering passengers lay the Argoth Plains, which had been a memorial forest only a year ago. There the titanic armies of Mishra and Urza clashed. Atop shorn tree trunks and shredded vines, shoulder sw soldiers swarmed like insects. Yotian warriors gleamed in the sunlight and made Mishra's defenders in black ant armor. Among them moved clay atonipons and maggots, tearing into whatever flesh presented itself. Men charged and fought and fell and died. They are really killing each other, aren't they? Enthused one codger between sips of red wine. Yes, Captain Crucius answered flatly. Six months ago, you would have seen them killing only Forrest. Now you're going to see them kill each other. Madame Gary's face had flushed healthier once the anchor was down and the war was unfolding before them. You say they fight at night too? They'll be fighting all through supper and on to the evening? Crucius's face was grim. Any more? Yes. They'll fight certainly through supper, and probably until we can only see by the light of the bombs they drop on one another. Splendid! She was at last pleased with some of the aspect of the journey. It will be glorious to watch the fires and the flares under a starry sky. Perhaps my niece Elgia 
won't last field well enough to come on dock. There must be plenty of eligible bat bachelors on that battlefield. The codger sipped in delight. I hardly imagine there will be any left after this evening's show. He took another sip and lips were lined in red, as he said. I suppose if they run out of men, there'll just be more arriving on ships. Look at that dragon engine, Crusus said, wanting to divert his own attention from the massacre. A massive mechanism waded into the combat. Its steely tail scythed through charging lines of mortal men. Men counterattacked and spears jagged into the air. The artifact dragon sped wings of titanium mesh and drew them inward. Spears and men both tumbled in twin cyclones. Ornithopters darted like dragonflies and dropped bombs among the toiling armies. Smoke and dust and body parts bounded up in violent clouds. Moments later, the popping reports reached Nuneve. Those blasts were dwarfed, though, by a huge explosion in the center of the battlefield. Ah, did you see that, said Crucius, the pillar of the black smoke rising into the sky just now? His speech was interrupted by a thunderous boom, the combined emission of a hundred of bombs. The sound waves echoed out over the glassy sea and rifled the sails of New Neve. When a Mitra's titans has stumbled into a trap, I'm told that Urza's army digs gigantic picts long enough to swallow a dragon engine whole, and then they line the bomb with bombs to cover it. When the time is right, they lure a machine into the spot. That must be what you just witnessed. It fell, ignited the bombs, and... Ah, see there? It's climbing out. Something emerged from the base of the smoke ring. The gigantic mechanism did not have much to climb as crawl. Misshaping and trembling, the titan clawed out its blasted plane. Its legs were gone below the knees, and its riveting sinews of wire and plate dragon across the torn ground. It heaved itself along, above Mishra's shrieking and retreating forces. The sound of its shearing gears reached Nuneve. With a terrific groan, the titan collapsed upon its own mired men. An excited cheer went up from the noble passengers, and more than a few raised appreciative wine glasses to toast the machine's demise. A ravening boom caught the cheer and swept it away among dying screams. Well, Captain, said Madame Gurry, Despite a week of tortures at sea, everything short of sea monsters and scurvy, you've certainly delivered the promise of entertainment on this voyage. Enough mayhem for you? Enough for the moment. The clavier of it all has elevated the bouquet of this rather vulgar wine you serve. Bathed in the light, in the glow of the bombs, and the sound of the falling titans, the supper affair might even seem palatable, she laughed lightly. Another column of smoke had gone up since she began speaking this one in the woods behind the battle lines. After rising through curtains of moss and continents of leaf, the soup was broadly spread. Wind drew ash and putrid scent over the gunwale. <coughs> They're dirtying the bed dead from yesterday's battle, Crucis noted. I do hope the wind shifts, said Maragurri. I'm getting bits of ash in my wine. She was looking down at the glass, picking out an authentic particle when the blast went off. First came only a searing light, a bite, bl bright yellow-white that split the side of the battlefield. It seemed to Crucius that the ad itself jumped. The land looked unreal, only a vivid painting of canvas. 
and even now the canvas tore in half and it made the blazing sunlight. That's what it seemed. There's a second sun hidden behind the island, a blue sun, and it was burning through the fabric of reality. A vast ring of dirt and bodies and machines leaped up around the black blaze. The blast carved a deep well in the center of the island, pulverized rock and man and machine, flinging them up in a brown bowl all around it. The next moment, the bowl doubled in size, then quadrupled. Ford that had withstood even the onslaughts of Urza Misha stood no longer, laid down like blazing jack straws. Mounds that had laid round in solemn against the bright sky disintegrated in the face of the spreading sphere of force. Mayhem, Grusius gasped out. The whole island disappeared. It was gone, down a mile below the waste waterline. Titans, dragons, orthopters, warriors, all gone. The ocean had poured into the void, except that now, the, even the advancing will of the spheres pushed it back. The merfolk's observers darted off, trying to stay ahead of the crushing mass. Water piled into a giant mountain that ringed the flesh. Already, Nuvi's bow strained against the upward swell. The childlike figuring stared into the bright flash of the end of the world. Way anchor, Crucius cried. He stuck her towards the captain but could no go, go no further. The deck pitched, stealing his feet from under him. Nobles and crew tucked amid bolted seddies. Red wine hung in weird arcs in the air as the ocean sucked its belly towards the passengers. Then they were rising. Wine spattered groaning planks. Nuneep crowded up the wave. Flowing water sc scraped the very clouds. Rowing, Crucius cleaved to the leeward rail. The black water, he glimpsed the ocean bed. Horrifically close as the ship heeled away from the slope. It was sure Nynaeve would capsize and kill them all. But the whale flood yanked the anchor chain tight and brought the hull upright again. With a virtual joint, the anchor pulled free of the ocean bottle, bottom. Nynaeve mounted up the wave. Nobles tumbled from the port side. Crucius could only watch heart and throat. They would all be dead soon. There's mayhem and death enough for everybody. The ship bobbed cork-like upon the wave. Through the wall of water, the blast glared. It had grown only more intense. It gleamed brightly through half a mile of turbid brine. In moments, Nynaeve reached a foamy peak, a region where wind, water, and fire were mixed. Crucius couldn't tell, up from down, light from dark. They were over the crest, in winds that tore masts as they had trees. In the bowl of the blast, sea water rushed to fill the crater where Argoth had been. Nuneve sailed pell-mell down the concave slope. It followed the bright interior of the new sun awakened on Dominaria. That was the last any of them saw. The eye of every person on deck burned from their skulls. Blindly, they clutched to the mad ship as it cursed down the wave towards the rolling foundations of the world. Sit, Daddy. Are you thirsty? Pretty and small at nine years old, Nynaeve sat at the twilight veranda. A Jamurian tea service rested on a platter before her. Steam rose brightly from the dark brew. It's getting cold, Nynaeve wore her bed dress, what she called her tea tree dress because it got, because she got to wear it only when they were out on shore, when the tr where the trees grew. 
a chi, chi she garbed in a waistcoat and pantaloons, like any good captain's son. The captain himself stood before her, no longer a privateer. Crucius had become a respected freighter captain. As fair, hard-working, as reliable as the sun itself, Crucius was among the richest sea captains on the continent. He only had Nynaeve to thank. Just now, Crucius did not heed his daughter, though. He looked past brickwork and riled grapevines down to the sea, wide and black, beneath the setting sun. Crucius blinked toward it, mesmerized. He had just come off it and could hardly wait to get back. To him, the sea was life, and lad was death. I can't wait forever, Nynaeve insisted. Crucius smiled and shook his head. I'm sorry, darling. I'm just distracted tonight. She poured tea into a cup for him and in one for herself. If you're worried about tomorrow, I'm not. You see that Trigian was the best on three continents. She'll know what to do. Yes, darling, he agreed, kneeling and taking her hand. It was small and fragile in his palm, like the body of a sparrow. Yes, he will know what was wrong. She nagged sagely, lifted the cup to her lips, and took one scowling sip. The porcelain swooped away, and a tr trouble tremored beneath her chin. He thought he saw a tear form, but it never emerged, and she swallowed the tea. A look of relief crossed her face, she said. It tastes delicious from these new cups. You don't have to drink it yet, if it's too hot, Crucius said, taking his own experimental taste. He grimaced. Or if it's too bitter... He set the key down, tea down in the tray. Nynaeve still held hers in dainty fingers. No, this is the first time I've had a tea set, and the first time we've been on shore in a year, and I want to enjoy it all. She took another sip. You're a good, brave girl, Nynaeve, Crucius said. A good, brave girl. Crucius awoke to a uh, sea storm. The deck rolled in long, deep swells. Shattered ran through the planks, with every sway of the ship. Shattered masts scraped against the gunwale. Metal shrieked. Wood moaned. Severe lines lashed the deck. Rain battered the captain's back. Blast! Whether it was day or night, he couldn't have told. The flash that had destroyed Argoth had destroyed his eyes, as well. He didn't need eyes to know that most of the passengers and crew were dead. The Kubrick smell of blood filled the air, and the septic scent told us spilled guts and corpses. Aside from his own groats, Crucius heard no other human sound. But he lived, if this could be called living. Blind, battered, sick aboard his own ship, Crucius lived. He could not man the pumps alone, even if they remained intact. Could not clear the deck. Could not even see land or star to find safe harbor. Perhaps there is no land to see. Argos has gone. It's ravaged foundations somewhere in the slowing depths below. The army of Urgea and Mishra were gone too. Perhaps the blast had sunk Teresier as itself. Perhaps there's no safe harbor in the world anymore. A wood bucket bounded noisily across the deck, towards Crucius. Blindly, he lifted his hand over his head. He could only guess its course. There's a stunning sound and a taste of blood, and he slumped over. He had placed too much hope in the Cherian, the best on three continents. The man knew about the application of leashes, the use of phrenology, and the manipulation of pressure points on the foot and ear to relieve tensions in the distal portion of the body. But the wasting illness that ravaged Nynaeve was not localized anywhere. 
on ear or foot or body. It was the doom laid on beautiful things, but whatever dark and jealous God equated mortality with misery. Her illness was not a thing of body, but of soul, a curse laying on her because she had otherwise been perfect. The churgeon had no answers for her beyond herbal balms and insinuation of copper fibers under the skin. Crucius had followed his advice acidodously, and Nynaeve had borne the painful brunt of these treatments with the same courage she had borne the scalding teeth. She was a grave girl, not only by nature, but by necessity. She saw acutely that her father needed her to be brave. They lingered there, in that vine-strewn villa above the sea, so Nynaeve could wear her tree dress and water the bazaar. Her eyes gleamed with the bright flap of the trader's net, tense, and her eyes and fingers shimmered with the jewelry Crucius bought her. The money he spent was legitimate coin, and the adornments he bought reminded of the sea, bounty of the sea, pearl and mother of pearl, nautilus shell, abalone, shark tooths, starfish. At first, Nynaeve, glad to receive these gifts and wore them everywhere. Slowly, though, she ceased to enjoy them. The shiny things only drew more notice to the taut lines of her throat and the thinness of her wrists. One day, she refused to purchase. Instead, she turned about to find something of equal valid in an adjacent stall, something for him. Buy these, Daddy. You've been wanting a new set of knives for your carving projects, she said. Shallowed by the slate roof of the smithy, Crucio smiled. They're too expensive, darling. No more expensive than the pearls you wanted to buy me, she replied. Nynaeve laid hold of his hand and gently, You don't mean to buy me all these things. I know that you love me. Good girl, Nynaeve, he said through choked oath. Always know that I love you. Crucius awakened, weeping into the teeth of the storm. The bucket lingered beside him and delivered a flesh, fresh blow, which each rolled the ship. He flung it away and angrily. There had never been a safe harbor for him. Not when his daughter turned into a skeleton before him. Not when his nation ceased to exist. Not now. Had he been on land during that blast, he surely would have died. But this thing can't be called living. The vessel heaved sluggishly beneath him. It lulled up one edge of the wave. Its builds must have been filled. Between rain and sloshing waves, it could only be filling. The rain hardened into his biting hail. Growing, Crucius crawled onto the battered planks. He groped for footholds, ripped sailcloth, knotted lines, splintered spars, a cold, cold arm. In the midst of pelting hail, he paused. He finger held an arm in a sleeve of lace. He tried to speak, but found his throat was only fit for the screams and roars. Hoping against hope, he found the lacy sleeve to his shoulder, Will and passed it to a collar. He pressed his finger to the fallen woman's neck, but only felt flesh as cold and still as meat in a cellar. There was no pulse. The roaring hail grew forcaceous across his back. He took a moment more to pass his hand over the woman's face. Madame Geary. Mayhem and death, he hissed. Mayhem and death. Miserable, Crucius crawled onwards. Hail sliced his back of his neck and the crown of his head. He clawed along the stumps of the shattered rail to midships and clumbered over ironwork settees. There were three more bodies between him and the ruined hatch. He could not stalk among them, but only swayed down into the hold. 
away from the lacerating skies. Twilight had already surrendered to night before they returned from their last visit with the surgeon. Nuneve wanted more tea. Crucius was in, a was in a mood to refuse her nothing. Soon she sat in the same seat with the same Jamurian tea set and the same tea dress that she'd worn their first night on land. Once again, Crucius stood, staring past grapes and out to sea. Aside from the deep darkness, nothing else had changed. No, everything had changed. Daddy, don't be so sad, she said. We'll be at sea tomorrow. Yes, darling, he said distantly. We'll find another churgeon, a better one. We'll be back at sea tomorrow. Such enjoy your tea tonight. This is my last tea on land, she said, gently pouring herself some tea. Crucius hurried to her. Don't say that. We'll stay longer. We'll stay here as long as you want. Oh, that's all right, father, she said, sipping the too hot tea and struggling not to make a face. When she gained her position, she looked and said, Don't be sad. But I am sad, darling. Then don't be afraid. I am afraid. You're everything to me. My whole world. I'm not afraid, Daddy. Don't be. you be afraid. He bent to embrace her. She melted into his arms and snuggled against her neck. his neck. There was a final, perfect moment as he held her. Then her last long breath left in a sweet susurration. He breathed too a startled, trembling bless, as though he could draw her freeing spirit into his body before it fled away forever. Crucius stood. The Jumerian tea set toppled and crashed to the ground. She did not stir at the sound. He lingered there, holding her, gazing out at the black, unseeable sea. This ship had been his courage. He had not gone to sea again until he could take Nynaeve with him. Now the ship was dead, and he nearly so. It was a ghost ship, ravaged first by the economic, economic necessities, then by the jaded ill use, and last of all, by a blast that destroyed the very world. The same dark, inexplicable forces that had clawed from the blind earth to destroy his daughter had reached up from the black sea to destroy the sh ship that bore her name. I failed her twice, Crucius whispered to himself. I lost her twice. He felt a stab of guilt for taking his daughter to sea for turning her namesake into a barge for hauling human bloodlust and depravity. I destroyed them both. There could be no damning fate in that. He was done. He had died in every way a man could die except in flesh. It could come in many ways now. Perhaps the ship would sink or capsize. Perhaps the storm would kill him with ice and tumbling debris and exposure. But all of those would be the doing of Crucis to himself. I destroyed her. I can destroy myself. With a groan, he dragged himself up the starved crate where he laid. He had no idea how long he lingered there, lapsed him into and out of consciousness. The ceaseless turmoil of wind and sea and the dizzy pitching and shudder of the ship had made sleep and dream indistinguishable. Tumbling, he eased himself to the planks and crawled. A splash barrel spilled pastry flour across the boards. A wet lion sneaked through the mess and jagged, jags of shattered glass littered the floor. Uncaring, Crucis wormed his way towards the hold door. The stateroom of his own cabin lay beyond. There would be a very sharp knife in his desk drawer, one of the blades he'd used to carve the figurehead. It would carve his neck shortly. But he did not think of that. He thought of her. In his mind eye, he could still lean to see the lines of that sculpture, the face of his beloved child. 
She would have want she would not have wanted me to do this, he told himself, as he reached the door of the hold and hauled on the bar that held it closed. She would have not wanted me to do any of this. The bar was jammed solidly. Gritting his teeth, Crucius rose and kicked. The bar shifted upwards. Another kick and the thing had nearly cleared his back. Nothing can be easy. Not even this. He kicked one last time. The creaking groan began, and he shied back. Wood splintered. Something struck the door, and it sp split, spitting out rubble on him. A beam rammed Crucius' belly. A cargo hook struck his head. He would have... Sorry. He would have spun away except for the breeze that marred his legs. The landslide of wreckage continued over him, burying him to the waist. Crucius twisted, struggled to rest him free of the pile, but a jagged pain bay in his side. The ache intensified, stretching out to the chest and his neck. This is it, then, he slapped bitterly, slumping into breeze. This is it. Sit down, Daddy. It's getting cold, then, Eve said the next morning. She was on the veranda overlooking the sea. Red bricks and grapevines embracing her in the cool morning. Curia stood where he always did, though this time he knew it was only a dream. There's no next morning, Nynaeve, he said. You died last night. She shrugged, leaning over the padded metal seat beside her. I just wanted to see if, if you could make it through. If I could make it through? Yes, through the night, she said simply. Her smile would have seemed almost mischievous had she been, not been so sad. Now come and sit. Oh, darling, this is only a dream. Yes, in this dream, I always ask you to sit, but you never do, she replied scoldingly. It's a dream, Daddy, and you can do whatever you want. Come sit with me. Yes, he said, releasing a great felt sign. Yes. With elaborate decorum, she shifted the teapot and poured his cup to the brim. The brown liquid sent up a gentle fragrance. Her hands were small and tan above the white porcelain. I broke these cups last night, too. Yes, she said. The tea poured contently from the little pot. But you made it through. I was afraid you wouldn't. I was afraid your life would end. It did, darling. It did, Crucius assured. This time, the tea was not scalding or bitter. You were my whole life and future. I tried to go on. I built a ship in your name, but she wasn't you. I couldn't provide for her either. She wasted away just as you did. He shook his head and let out a rueful laugh. When you died, darling, my world has had to come to an end. When I shipped a name after you died, the whole world came to an end in a great explosion that consumed everything. The ship was destroyed by the blast and the storm afterwards. Eyes blighted and battered and buried in a pile of rubble. She looked at him over her cup of tea. Her eyes seemed older. Her expansion grown up despite her young face. What did you do then? Look at perplexity across his face, and he lowered the keycup only half emptied. What did I do then? Yes. Well, darling, he laughed. I died. And that's what I did then. Her look turned to one of consternation. You died? He nodded. I died. You were one of the last people left alive in hundreds of miles of oceans, and you didn't make it through? Crucius reached over to take her hand. What reason did I, what reason did I have to live? If I had a reason, I could have done anything. I could have crawled out from under the rubble. I could have braved the storms to clear the deck. I could have manned the pumps by myself and some found some way to smell for land or listen for stars. If I had you beside me, I would have had my whole world again. I could have done anything. You have me, her voice changed. 
eager, still, but not young. The voice of a woman instead of a child. Her face was fading. Her face and a veranda and a morning sea beyond. A, pulgy, a pulpy darkness seeping through the fabric of dream and only the woman's face remained. You do have me. I thought that I was the only one left alive until you opened the whole door. Nynaeve, you're only a dream, he said wearily, groping for her hands. I'm not a dream, she answered. She clutched her hands tightly, and I'm not Nynaeve. My name is Elgia. I'm Lady Garen's niece. Elgia, Kus repeated. Where am I? I was dreaming, he said into the tail and the dark of the cyclos. I thought you were my daughter. Tell me what you will. I want you to get up. I want you to get this ship back under control. I want you to take me to land. He shook his head and felt icy brine dripping over his shoulder. I can't. I'm done. What about all the things you just said? About pumping out the ship, clearing the decks, steering to land? I don't have any fight left in me, my dear. I'm worn out, battered, blind. There's nothing left to believe in. The answer was immediate. Believe in me. I want to live. Is that enough? I want to live. So like Nynaeve, so strong, determined, and brave. It wasn't enough for my daughter. It should have been, Elga said definitely. It should have been. So like Nynaeve. Yes, it should have been. But there's a monster, perhaps a god, that sees I should have beings in human lives and makes them impossible. Call it what you will, fate or curse, hatred or caprice, but it remains, the impactable darkness. I can see, Captain. I was below deck whenever whatever... I was below deck when whatever happened, happened. I can see, and I can lift, and I can tie, and I can pump, and I can do anything you need me to do. You just tell me what needs, what to look at, and I'll see it for you. I want to live. A new breath entered him. For the first time since his daughter had died, Captain Crucius really breathed. I was Yotian, Elga. My daughter was Yotian. There's an ancient Yotian belief that every person has many souls. That you can always be redeemed. At any moment you can let go of old souls that ruled you. Let them fall into damnation and begin a new soul. That's what my daughter was to me. Whenever I was sure my life was over, she appeared and brought me back into the light of heaven. That was Nynaeve to, thee, to me, my keeper of souls. Listen to me, Elga's voice was desperate. There's a loneliness and fear in her tone. The sound of utter abandonment. I want to live. I want to live. Crucius smiled. He actually smiled, browned and battered and tattered in a garso sargoso of his own life, trading off a damned soul for a newborn one. Crucia smiled. Then help me dig my way out of this mess, Elga. I want to live too. Thanks for listening. This that has been Expeditions to the End of the World by J. Robert King.